Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Andrew Rushby, and as always, I'm joined by Hugh Osborne and Hannah Wakeford. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the question, how does a planet form? Where do they come from? What planet's made out of? And how do we know this? What can we tell from observations we have and the theories that we have and the models that we have about where planets come from? Now, obviously, this is a very important question with a relatively simple form, but very complex answers. So where on earth do we start with this? I'm going to put Hannah on the spot here to get us going. <laughs> I think we actually have to start a little bit before that and look at the star formation process and where do our stars that are hosting our planets come from? And one of the things that is actually really important is that these things happen relatively quickly in astronomical terms, that they, the timelines for a, a star forming is really fairly short before it gets to the point where planets start forming as well. So during the formation of a star, when the gas cloud, so you've got this big cloud of hydrogen, helium gas with dust in it, and that dust is things like our magnesium silicates, it's things like water ices. We're talking about a cloud that is incredibly low density. It would essentially feel like, you know, empty space. So that beautiful image from JWST is, is, a, is a beautiful example, right, of, of a star forming region. Yeah, and the amazing thing about that JWST image is that you can see through those dense, dusty bits, so those, those silicates, those ices, to that star that's in there forming. And that's at still a really cold temperature. It's really weird to think about, but that dust cloud itself is at like four Kelvin. So that's just above absolute zero. These molecules are not moving around very much. But there are different events and different things that can happen that can cause the, the materials to start coming together. And these are gravitational instabilities. So turbulence in a cloud can cause that. A nearby supernova, so a nearby explosion, which causes pressure waves and radiation pressure, can cause the material to start to kind of fall together. And as material starts to kind of fall together, the gravity takes over and gravity starts pulling more and more things in. And your star starts forming from that center of that gravitational well. So where the largest clump of material is, mass is, that forms your largest gravitational well and everything starts falling in towards that. So you start pulling material together to make your star. And that material is mostly gas. It is mostly hydrogen. And these other stuff is kind of in there and it will depend on when and where that star is forming. So the amount of other materials like oxygen or carbon or magnesium will depend where that star itself is forming and what the material is around it. And I guess a key thing as well is that the, the gas in that initial cloud is moving a little bit, right? And so when that movement gets collapsed down, what it ends up doing is rotating. And, and you know, it's like a skater pulling in their arms, getting quicker and quicker. So actually, even if you're very slowly like shifting the gas cloud, that ends up as very fast rotation at the mm. scale of the star. And actually, it's that rotation that's important for planet formation in the end, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So everything's spinning. Everything has to conserve what we call angular momentum, which is the the rate of turn that something has, essentially. So the smaller that radius gets, the, the closer into that rate of turn, the quicker you have to go. So the star in the center is spinning relatively quickly. And then out from that, as you spin something, think about pizza dough. As you spin pizza dough, it flattens out. And that's what's happening to the material that isn't pulled into that central star. And that's the disk where our planets are going to form. And this is happening at the same time. So this disk is happening before that star has actually become what we would call a star. So a star is called a star when it hits something called a main sequence. And the main sequence is essentially just the point in its lifetime where it starts burning, fusing hydrogen at its core. That's when it, as a star, starts emitting light. It starts emitting radiation. Before that, it's what we would call a protostar, and it spends quite a long time becoming, being a protostar before it becomes a main sequence star, where it will spend the rest of its lifetime. So there's lots of stages before something becomes a star where it can already have a planetary system around it, which is both interesting and highly confusing and you've got now simultaneous timelines of formation so you've got to think about what the star is doing in the center the not a star the star not a star (laughs) in the center of that whilst you've got your planets forming in this disk around it so you've got these protoplanets and you've got this proto star system that will eventually evolve in time to becoming a star with fully formed planets around it yeah this is a whole thing that i don't quite understand because for me planets are basically formed when the gas gets dispersed. And that happens because the star... No, how would you form a Jupiter if the gas is not long, no longer there? Well, I mean, they're still forming, right? They're still in the right. process of formation while there is a gas. I mean, we'll get, we'll get to this. <laughs> Already, um, and then as soon as the star starts producing you know, more photons and starts burning hydrogen, mm-hmm. that's when the gas disk gets blown away and planet formation kind of stops, right? Or at least planet accretion, I guess. I, I don't know, these timelines, are, yeah, the, this, I always think of the planet side and I never really think of the star side. <laughs> so when we look at the observations and we look at the observation snapshots, it's essentially what we do in astronomy is we take snapshots of different stars, different planets, different positions in our universe, different star formation regions, and we piece them all together and we say, okay, well, we've seen it at this timestamp. We've seen it at this timestamp. We've seen it at this timestamp. Let's, does that all fit together? So from those observations, we know roughly that the gas disk, so the hydrogen and the helium, will either become part of the star, part of planets, or be blown away into space by the end of what is known as this T-Tauri phase of the star itself. And the T-Tauri phase is the active accretion phase of the star, the active part of its lifetime where it's pulling in as much material as possible so that it can get hot enough and dense enough at, at its core to force hydrogen atoms together. So to force that fusion reaction to occur. So we know that by the time that our stars are reaching the end of that evolutionary phase in their lifetimes, we kind of have an upper limit for the planet formation. And that's around 10 million years for our giant planets. So giant planets require large amounts of gas. If there isn't large amounts of gas available, if it's all been blown away or it's all been part of the star then they can't form anymore. So there's like an upper limit for how quickly a giant planet like Jupiter or our hot Jupiters or the HR8799 ginormous planets have to form. And that's about 10 million years. 
But for the smaller planets, which are made of the refractory material, where refractory is something that is much, much harder to vaporize. So we've got two different materials here, volatiles and refractory materials. A volatile is something like water or carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide or methane, things that we think of as mostly gases because they are very easy to vaporize. They are volatile. And then refractory material are things like rocks, so like our magnesium silicates, which is the sand that we have, the main material of the earth itself, things like aluminium oxides, uh, and anything that has these more solid materials that are very hard to vaporize. So once that gas is gone, once most of those volatile materials have gone from your disk, you end up with your refractory materials, and those are kind of left behind, and the dust disk around a star lasts a lot longer, and that lasts about 100 million years. So for giant planets to form, we've got about 10 million years to do it in, but for small or for rocky planets, they don't necessarily have to be small, I suppose, you have about 100 million years to form. So you do have these very different timelines for formation of different kinds of worlds. We don't quite know how long it takes at the moment. I think this is one of these open questions that maybe you can form rocky planets well after the end of the gas disk when the gas giants stop forming but maybe also you can't and it depends on lots of things so i think that that's one of those things where we don't quite know on average how long it takes to form terrestrial planets right yeah and there's a lot of different information on very different scales i was talking before about those snapshots that we get when we do astronomy and we we look at our astrophysics in very different and distant regions but if we look come into our own solar system what we can do is we can use meteorites so the building blocks of our solar system the leftover parts that you know some of them happen to fall through our atmosphere and land on the surface so we can pick them up and play with them and the measurements that have been done on meteorite samples kind of can tell us about the initial conditions for rocky planet formation in our solar system around our young evolving star and these actually show that materials started to group together. These rocky refractory materials started to group together into millimeter, centimeter sized pebbles just a million years after the disk formed. Really, really quickly. So the evidence from our own solar system says that this formation process of clumping together in a disk around a protostar happens really rapidly. And not only do we have evidence, of course, from our own solar system, but unlike many of the findings and the discoveries we discuss on the show, we actually have some pretty incredible direct images, right, of protoplanetary disks forming at different stages throughout their evolution, if you will. From ELMA and the Spitzer Space Telescope, for example, we can th remember the is it HL Tauri, the, the classic image of mm. the protoplanetary disk that we can actually see with our eyes, which I think helps to build these connections. So not only do we have the evidence from our solar system that Hannah pointed out, but also probably more direct imaging that we're used to on the show. Yeah, and we even get like chemical, you know, we can take spectra of the disks as a function of distance. We can figure out what chemicals are in different parts of the disk. Although, you know, one of the things is a lot happens very close. You know, you get these, you know, you get mm -hmm. the temperature in the disk is actually varies as distance from the star, which obviously makes sense. And so closer into the the star, the gradient is a lot sharper. So you get a lot quicker temperature increase and you get lots of different things going on and we can't resolve that. We only can, can only see the star really because it's such happening so close to the star. But way out in the distant reaches of these extrasolar systems where we get these beautiful rings and, and dust features, we, we've got really good information, as you say, from, from ALMA and from other infrared kind of observations. 
Yeah, and when you look at these beautiful kind of observations from Alma, and, and there's a number of kind of survey images that you you can get, which combine with simulations so that you can get that really good understanding of what's going on. It really picks out those features. And there's these big gaps in the disk, or there's spiral arm features like a galaxy, and then there's lots of different kind of clumps in some of the ring groupings. And that's all kind of very new information that is telling us that there are many different active processes that are going on in these disks that form different interactions. And it's about the interaction mostly between the gas in the disk and the dust in the disk that starts that formation process and then dictates how and what is forming. Yeah, so we should really talk about the snow line, which is always a beautiful um, kind of <laughs> expression I like. It's a poetic poetic yeah. phrase, isn't it? Yeah. I love a good snow line. And so that's the snow line is basically, well, there are multiple snow lines because uh, we're not talking just about water ice here, which is obviously turns to ice at zero degrees. There's also snow lines for every single volatile. So for methane and for carbon dioxide, at some point in temperature, these are going to go from being in the solid phase or in the, in the gas phase at higher temperature to being in the solid phase. And because we have that gradient in the disk of temperature, there'll be a certain point where you cross that phase transition and beyond that, suddenly you can start forming that volatile kind of snow, be it water, be it methane or whatever volatile you, you have. Yeah, and these, these snow lines end up being essentially a point at which you build up a huge amount of this more solid material. And one of the really interesting things about, in particular, the water ice snow line it's a lot of things that mean the same word in the English language, but when you when you uh, put them together in the physics and astrophysics context, that that is a very specific thing, right? The water, ice, snow—they're all the same thing to us. They're all water, but that's not actually the case when we're talking about it here. So that water ice snow line actually ends up being this over density of material in that disk because water is once it starts forming that ice it's not going to just kind of slowly taper off in the disc and you'll have like just a density and even amount of ice from that point onwards. You're more likely to have a buildup of the amount of ice in that region where it started to form. And another thing that's really important comes back to that gas versus dust ratio. So you normally have about, I think, 10 times, 10 to 100 times more gas than dust in your disc. But Water is eight times more likely to freeze onto the surface of another molecule, so onto a lump of dust, than it is to spontaneously just freeze out from the gas to a solid. So the fact that you've got dust there makes it easier for water to freeze out. And that's the same case for other materials as well. And the interesting thing about the ice lines, these snow lines, is that the crystals are going to be very, very small. They're going to be a very, very thin layer in like this kind of ice crystals around it. But what's important about that is the way in which they attach themselves to a dust, because they actually do so for water molecules in particular by sticking one leg out into space. So water has this uh, arrangement where it's H2, so two hydrogens to one oxygen, and they have a very specific angle that those hydrogens stick out from oxygen. One of those sticks to the dusk and the other one's sticking out in space. 
So they actually create this kind of like structure which attracts more things and it acts like a Velcro layer around these rocks so that collisions between different materials become stickier. It becomes easier to stick things together if there is a layer of ice around it. And because things become easier to stick together, you end up with this kind of clumping, this over density of material at these snow lines. That means it's possibly, maybe, easier to form a planet. So let's talk about that formation process, because you basically mentioned the start of what is we call core accretion, right? So, mm-hmm. so this accretion of solid material in the disk, gradually sticking together, building up the core of a planet or the core of a giant planet, maybe. And once the core reaches a kind of critical mass, and we don't quite know what that mass is. I mean, sometimes some people say it's as low as two Earth masses. Some people say it's, it's higher. It can start pulling gas from the disk. So you've, you've got this forming solid core, which is you know gradually getting bigger. And eventually it's massive enough, the gravity on the surface is enough that it can pull the gas from the disk onto the surface. And this becomes an exponential kind of runaway process at some point. Um, and again, there's a, there's a mass threshold that it crosses and then it can start you know, ex- exponentially pulling the, the, the gas from the disk. And eventually you end up with a gas giant planet. Um, and when the gas disk gets blown away, you, you're kind of uh, left with a, a gas giant. Uh, and that, as you say, probably preferentially happens at the snow line because that's where you get more material buildup. And actually, it's quite interesting because in our own solar system, that's, that's exactly what we see. We see a, the biggest giant planet it's almost precisely where the snow line would have been in the early solar system. And then beyond that, you get progressively smaller giant planets that were, that were formed because they either had less material, they had less time. And inside that, you get smaller planets, obviously the terrestrial planets, which didn't have the, the benefit of ice and so didn't get as big. And for a long time, planetary formation theory was basically trying to explain the solar system. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, the solar system in that sense is very neat. It, it very much follows what you would expect from this idea of gas giants forming up the, the ice line. But when we started finding exoplanets, especially the hot Jupiters extremely close to their stars, that kind of neat picture disappeared. And we started need, needing to explain some more extreme cases and, um, you know, giant planets forming way, way far from the snow line. And, you know, also just not necessarily in circular orbits, not necessarily in nice mm-hmm. uh, aligned planes kind of thing that we see in our solar system. So so extrasolar planets kind of makes planet formation explanations a lot more difficult, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100%. It's really interesting because if you think about the different aspects of temperature and density and materials, you'd come up with a logical conclusion. Oh, you end up with a solar system very much like our own. It just seems logical. But then you start seeing all these giant planets really close to the star and you go, okay, well, our logic is clearly not sound. How do we kind of, what do we need to do for that? And the process of movement, migration, the fact that these giant worlds can move over time becomes a main thing. And now that, to me, it feels like it's really funny because that feels like that is really, really logical. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't that be the case? But we had to, as as a scientific field, did have to rewire our brains in how we think about that and go, actually, no, that, that does make sense. The other thing also makes sense, but this makes more sense. So I think it's an evolving logic in science and i like that idea one one interesting thing is that the idea that planets have to move around i think 
actually improved our knowledge of solar system mm. formation because we looked at the solar system in a new light and we found a lot of evidence that actually this giant planets in our own solar system also moved around. So there's this this thing called the, the Nice model and the, the Grand Tack theory. Mm-hmm. I love the Grand Tack theory. And basically these posit the gas giants formed, well, maybe close to where they are now, but they, they <laughs> then migrated in towards the sun. And then growing, Saturn migrated at a slightly faster rate and then managed to kind of grab onto gravitationally Jupiter and pull them, you know, pull the gas giants back out. And there's evidence for this in the asteroid belt, in in the kind of um, the limit of of planet formation there and in the Kuiper belt and, you know, the comets that we see that have been thrown out into into space and in lots of other chemicals. And the size of Mars as well. Mars is smaller than we would expect it to be. If you look at the inner planets, if you look at the rocky planets, we go kind of up in size till we get to the earth and then suddenly there's this teeny tiny little mars where you should have had a large amount of material to form something so what happened to mars and the grand tack kind of has this idea that it was an influence from something else the migration the movement of giant planets yeah, I mean, the, the Nice model has been evolving for a little while now, right? I think it's mm-hmm. there's some recognition that certain things that it can do well and certain things that maybe it doesn't. Yeah. I think that the, the issue is here that the process is, is dynamically chaotic, right? It's completely dependent on your initial conditions, how you set up the simulation. So I think they do pretty well at predicting the things that we've already mentioned, but they miss things like maybe too many craters on the moon, I think was was one of the issues they're finding. Mm. Uh, some of the impact of fragments don't, aren't completely consistent with some asteroids. And I think some of the cometary Im- impacts on the main belt asteroids should have produced more families than exist, is my understanding of, mm. of that. They're, they're minor things that can be explained by those sensitive you know, dependence on those initial conditions. I think they're still still doing pretty well overall. Yeah, I think one of the other things is the timescales aren't necessarily what we have based on these meteorite measurements as well. So the timescales is a really important aspect. And one of the things that I think is really key and where exoplanets and disk studies really come into this is getting those snapshots at different timestamps. We're getting thousands and thousands of individual pictures of the universe at different times and each of these are in different stages of evolution for many of our hot jupiters we are fully at the end of their evolutionary state i mean some are still spiraling in those are interesting for Mm. other reasons well when you were talking about volatiles just being water and not rock i was like hang on don't you study things that are in the gas phase all the time (laughs) like everything's a volatile yeah (laughs) Yeah, that's a volatile for me Uh, Uh, wow the physical properties of the chemistry itself suggest that it's not easy to vaporize and therefore a refractory (laughs) material but they are a vapor yeah so the kind of time scales is a really key thing here and like you said andrew the chaotic nature of it means very similar to weather simulations for the Earth. So the weather is a chaotic system that, you know, everyone will know the butterfly flaps its wings in in Brazil and it causes a tornado in Texas or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it is. But it's a fundamental nature of it is that it is a chaotic system. There is some randomness in there. So you have to run thousands, millions of simulations and come up with a probability so you have to go, ah, there's a 10% chance that this is going to happen at this time. And that's exactly what all of the, the kind of modeling behind understanding the formation process of our solar system are doing. And not just the full solar system, full planetary system formation, but the very, very simple, what you would think is a very simple anyway, collision of two particles. And 
the collision of two protoplanets, what happens? How does that impact an atmosphere? If you've got an atmosphere around one, but not around another, if the ratio of mass from one to another is different, if one's got a core and the other one doesn't, how does that change the way that impact event, the, the collision between two materials within that disk, affects what you're seeing? And there's a number of these disks which are, you know, they're very, very strange in that they have periodic brightenings. So we see these disks and then suddenly they're hugely bright and that suggests something happened and we think it might be planetary collisions within it, but we don't know. So there's lots of simulations that you also have to do on the smaller scale within that large scale formation. And very locally, that is one of the potential formation mechanisms of the Earth's moon, right? An impact to mm, something along exactly. the size of maybe an Earth-sized or Mars-sized uh, object on the same orbit as the Earth. I think I think it's called Thea, right? The, the goddess of yeah. the moon, which I thought was very, again, very... Uh, very romantic, but yeah, that that's potentially <laughs> one of the causes or the uh, the mechanisms that f form the moon. Still, some issues with that because you know some of the materials that make up the moon aren't the same as the Earth, which you would expect. The the differentiation and between the core and the and the mantle is a little bit off, but certainly very locally that would be happening. But Hannah, I just wanted to come back to something you said about the evolution of the disk and the images that we get at the different stages because I think that's you know obviously incredibly important. And we kind of skipped over it a little bit, mm. but there is still a lot of uncertainty in terms of going from the microscopic to the macroscopic, right? Mm -hmm. Even when we talk talking about the pebbles how do you get from you know those condensation nuclei right <laughs> up to the the bigger the pebbly sized things and then up to the rocky sized things and then up to the planet sized things still a little uncertain about that process well you're going to love this answer we have absolutely no idea yeah <laughs> <laughs> i love it i do love it <laughs> i mean it's what it's a key open question, open question field, exactly right? yeah, yeah. Uh, what, uh, what are the building blocks that form the planets? Is it planetesimals? Is it pebbles? The funny thing is, we think we understand how very small things come together. We think we understand how these little tiny, thinner, smaller than the width of your hair, covered in tiny ice particles, things clump together. We think we understand how giant rocks clump together. We have very little understanding of how pieces of gravel, so centimetre-sized things come together to make meter, kilometer, 10 kilometer size things. That is the big gray area in understanding of how these materials actually stick. Because they should, in their disk, rotating around their star, have too much velocity and not enough sticking power. Yeah. Yeah. A collective shrug. <laughs> collective shrug. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so one thing is that you can actually have parts of the disk where the velocities aren't so great and this is this is kind of the key at the moment idea as to how to get around this kind of millimeter size problem that you collect dust basically in eddies so the disk itself is maybe a chaotically moving um, not you know not laminar flow regime and so you might end up with eddies forming where in the middle of the eddy you have kind of material that becomes trapped that becomes denser and maybe if you collect enough of these pebbles these what you know small grains into one of these eddies. This is called streaming instability. So I guess you can think of it as like a, an eddy in a stream, I guess. Maybe you can collect a lot of these things together at once and they can collapse down and form a, a planetesimal. Yeah, so, so, the, so the kilometer size bodies um, that we, we talk about probably having formed the rocky planets, these are called planetesimals. And actually, you know, we know that they must exist. We know that they must be numerous because in our own solar system, we see a ton of asteroids that clearly were inside 
large kilometer sized bodies because they had differentiation happening mm -hmm. and so we see you know either an iron meteorite that was in the core of one of these protoplanets or planetesimals or we see a, a rocky asteroid which must have been from the mantle so th th there's definitely planetesimals they have to form somehow <laughs> yeah. and the streaming instability is one way to do it you mentioned the, the pebbles as well so there is this idea that maybe instead of colliding planetesimals together and forming cores of planets that way you could also have one core of a planet which is going to collect pebbles from the dust and so these grains might stick to one planetesimal in the disk. And so this would then grow a core without collision, basically, with only just kind of like mopping up <laughs> the solid material from the disk. And it's kind of not, we're not really sure which one of these processes, whether it's these kilometer sized bodies colliding together, or whether it's a large body sweeping up from the disk, which one kind of dominates. And, you know, it seems like maybe you need both. Mm hmm. And I think that the way that that kind of sweeping up happens is you've actually got two distinctly different components here. We've been talking about them as this kind of collective, but there is gas and there is dust. And they move differently because they have different properties. They certainly have different masses. And that movement and the more you build up that dust, it actually starts to decouple from each other. So that means that the gas and dust are entirely separate from each other, moving around the star at different velocities, but at the same orbital distance. So think of two things orbiting around a star. If they're at a certain distance, it should take them roughly the same amount of time. But we end up with this situation where the gas itself is acting as like wind resistance. Yeah. It's acting as drag on these particles. So it slows them down. And that slowing down means they have to move inwards. So for something to be orbiting around in Keplerian physics, so following the laws that Kepler put down based on observations of our solar system, that if something is moving at a certain velocity, it has to have a certain orbital distance from its centre of its rotation. So if something slows down and this slowing down due to this drag, this air resistance from the gas in the disk on that dust particle, it means that dust particle has to move. And if it's slowing down, it has to move inwards. Yeah, they do move inwards. Yeah. I think it's slightly the opposite way around from what slightly you might expect. Slightly backwards, yeah, <laughs> from what you would expect. So the, the fact that it has to drift and then it might collect more particles because it's actually been able to access a different reservoir. So before it was, you know, orbiting around in its little kind of circle. It's collected all the things that it can nearby. If that drag actually moves it to a different part, it can collect more things and it can yeah. get bigger. And then if it's getting, if it ends up going faster because that drag is no longer affecting it because it's it's actually become big enough that it doesn't give a crap about the gas anymore, it can move outwards again. Oh, wait, there's more stuff. I can collect that. And it's just kind of dancing around going, oh, I'll have all of this, please. So there's kind of different aspects of the relationship between these materials that allows for this increased growth. Yeah, and in fact, the problem... Well, one of the problems with pebble accretion is that it kind of works too well. Like if you mm. if you run the theory, effectively a core can just grab all of the dust that's moving in to the star and it can grow to a giant planet core and start, you know, accreting way too quickly, way, way too efficiently. And so if pebble accretion is the only thing going on, then you would expect every single system to have multiple giant planets because of mm -hmm. this. And so we don't see that. So we know there must be something that's limiting how fast pebble accretion can, can happen. 
So does that imply that there is a universal planetary formation mechanism or that this might change depending on something? I think it implies that there are lots of different mechanisms that can go towards planet formation. And we're talking about planet formation of very different scales as well. So what we're mostly talking about is forming giant cores where we've still got that gas disk around. And we're seeing these gaps in these disks forming like from all the ALMA images. These are only about 1 million years old. They're really young. They're really young. They've got 10 million years for the gas to still be around. They've got loads of time left and they're already likely forming ginormous planets. Mm -hmm. So what at some point stops that? What at some point goes, nope, we're done now. We formed our Jupiter and our Saturn and we're going to stop for a bit. We'll wait for you. We'll wait for those small rocky planets to form. We'll wait for the moons to form. Remember, we've been talking about planets forming around a star. At the same time, we've got three things happening here. It's just insanely confusing. We've got a star forming with its disk around it. We've got a giant planet forming. It also has a disk around it, which is almost likely to be forming moons, which are probably going to be like... Indeed. There's too many things happening at once. Yeah. And there's feedbacks between them all, right? Because, I mean, so one of the key things as well is that the gas giant will grow in mass and then the mass gets big enough that that interacts with the protoplanetary disk. And so what normally happens is you reach a certain size as a core and you create a gap in the disk because the mass of, of the planet that's growing is influencing the protoplanetary disk. And that itself can influence the planet because it, you know, maybe pushes and pulls it around in position to the disk. Maybe it limits the amount of stuff that it can feed on, you know. It's such a complex process. And actually, we have one really, really nice example of a lot of these processes happening all at once. And that is in the Beta Pictoris disk. So Beta Pic has been in our ExoCup for a number of times. It's a fantastic system. Who knows what will happen in ExoCup 2022. But the star itself is about 24 million years old. It is larger and hotter than the sun, so it's more luminous than the sun. And even though it's still young, it is considered a main sequence star, but it still has a disk of dust around it. So even once you become a star, you don't just instantaneously then, oh, I'm a planetary system. You've, some of them have still got these very, very strong disks around it. And the disk around Beta Pic is actually warped. And that disk actually stretches out to thousands of AU away from the star. And it's got multiple offset components. It's not just a single disk that is warped. It's got components that kind of don't match up with each other. And one's tilted different to another. So it's got multiple disks at different angles that essentially kind of overlap in that the inner part of the disk is broken up into sections which have gaps in them so there's gaps that are around 30 80 500 800 au so that's four gaps in this dust disk that are visible at these very very different distances from that star but it also has a directly imaged planet around it beta pic b which was announced in 2008 and actually the observations show that it almost almost transited as well wouldn't that have been amazing if we had a transiting directly imaged planet it unfortunately did not it would have been freaking awesome but that planet is on a 21 year orbit around the star so it's about 9 au away from the star so well well within these disks of dust that we can measure so the dust disks are about 30 au out this planet's at 9 au so we've got not only 
this massive, very young star, but we've got these multiple components where we're seeing a ginormous planet and seeing the presence of potentially other ginormous planets way, way further out in this still evolving evolutionary stage. And the planet itself is is about nine times the, the mass of Jupiter. And it's been kind of, we've been able to refine the measurements from both radial velocities and astrometry measurements. So we have right next door a young disk, which is showing us these multiple different kind of evolutionary stages of planet formation and of giant planet formation as well, where you still have dust. Because Beta Pic B, the planet... I said it was at 9 AU and we've got this massive dust disk at 30 AU. There's also an inner dust disk at about 6 AU around the star still. So we've got, again, these very, very different components, which we are still trying to understand. And, you know, even just measuring how much dust there is in any one of these disks is a big question. It's interesting you mentioned Beta Big B. I mean, it is a very unique system. But the, the thing is, we don't actually know if Beta Big B formed through core accretion through this process we've been talking about. No. Because it is, you know, nearly 10 Jupiter masses. And, you know, we tend to think of core accretion only being able to form things maybe a few times the, the mass of Jupiter. And beyond that, you have to have some other mechanism. And that mechanism we normally call gravitational instability. So mm-hmm. that's where you get an instability that happens within the disk itself kind of like star formation, but happening on a smaller scale within the disk. And that is able to pull in a lot more mass and form these super Jupiters. So these Mm -hmm. basically all of the directly imaged planets that we have, with a couple of exceptions, are these extremely massive super Jupiters, which probably unlikely to have formed the same way as Jupiter. And Beta Pic B is is probably one of them. So there's a good chance that in this system, things didn't go the same way that they did in most other solar systems. There was this special event where you formed this big, nearly a brown dwarf out in the outer reaches of the solar system. And that probably disrupted everything else going on. Uh, so <laughs> it's just a complicated, uh, you know, spanner. It, it really is. And, and there's actually a Beta Pic C as well, which is also massive, but it's m- much closer to the star. It's at 2.7 AU. So it's very close to the star, relatively speaking. It's at the water ice line. It is almost exactly at the water ice line. So is it possible you're having core accretion and gravitational instability falling planets in the same disk at the same time? Is that possible? That is possible, oh yeah. That is possible. And, and I think that yeah. we, we can think about most stars don't actually form on their own. Most stars form in clusters, and then within those clusters you end up with binary, tertiary, quaternary whatever the next version of that word is as we go up the numbers systems and there's been five star systems six star systems that have been found with planets and it's kind of rare for a star to be very much on its own so we know these gravitational instabilities and the way in which a star forms where this material starts kind of coming together isn't a lone process So the expectation that it happens multiple times within the same area, within the same disk even, is incredibly common. The question is just how big does the thing get before we start defining it as a planet, a brown dwarf, another star. So there's that mass limit on the gravitational instability that sticks the question of do we need to define it that way? Or should we define things by their formation process? And that's a whole other debate that people get very, very passionate about (laughs) which we don't need to it's okay everybody it's all good but I think the processes there are multiple processes happening it's about 
what is defining which of those processes occurs. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to understand through all of these observations. Yeah, and we haven't even talked about, so, you know, we talked a little bit about forming terrestrial planets. How do you form mini Neptunes? How do you form super Earths? Is it the same process as crashing protoplanets together? Or do you form it more like giant planets at the snow line and then move them in? That's another open question where we, we don't entirely know the planets that we see, where they come from. We have absolutely no idea. It's so fun. One of the things that I'm really excited about with the JWST observations is getting our first kind of survey, first population look at the atmospheres of these super Earths, these mini Neptunes, these these Neptune-sized worlds where we can kind of ask, do any of these things that we're measuring in that atmosphere give us clues yeah. whatsoever about where or how they formed? So I guess the C2O ratio is probably the key one, right? Yeah, yeah, so the amount of one of the really key measures of that that C2O ratio is looking at the water absorption and the CO2. And those two things can really help you understand about the balance of materials and the balance of materials as we said right at the beginning when he was talking about the temperature gradient in your disk then helps define potentially where that that formation process happened. But again, I think all of this even for our giant planet, sets just an inner boundary rather than an actual outer boundary. So because of these snow lines, we know where that inner boundary should be, roughly, based on the star and its current abundances. So measurements of the star itself uh, are very important, which is what I was talking about in the last news episode, where we were getting the measurements of the amount of material in the stars can tell us a little bit about what that process was like. We can't ever say, oh, it formed at 3 AU or, oh, it must have formed between 2 and 5 AU and then migrated in because that's where the water snow line is. No, we can set that probably that inner boundary and go, yeah, it probably didn't form where it was, but it could have been anywhere beyond here because there's mixing processes as well. There is nothing simple. No. (laughs) As soon as you start clumping things together that material is not a single material. We're not talking about a single dust grain and then with like this really beautiful spherical ball of ice around it that is just pure water. We're talking about it capturing CO2 ice, so dry ice with CO, methane. There'll be other clumps of dust in there. How does that affect it? Where does it move to? How does it pick up other stuff? There is this mixing and mixing makes trouble because we are, when we're examining these atmospheres, We're examining atmospheres that are essentially a lot hotter. So that material has been separated out. It has entered the gas phase. It's all been picked apart. It is no longer a solid. We are looking at them individually and then going, okay, well, how did these come together? So then, Hannah, would you say it's useful to, you know, even if we're not looking necessarily at a planet formation study, to figure out where, you know, the planets are, their dynamical histories uh, for exoplanetary systems. Is that a useful activity for planet formation then? If we can't really be sure, we can place some limits and bounds perhaps on where they formed. Is seeing an exoplanetary system now and its dynamical arrangement representative of anything about its formation history? I guess it's an open question, but um, yeah, I wonder if we can connect what we're seeing today really in any meaningful way with what, what was going on in the past. I guess the kind of point of the whole question, really. Yeah, and again, it comes back to population studies it we can't look at an individual planetary system like we've done for the last hundreds of years looking at our own solar system and go oh well this must be the way it is we can't do that we have to look at a wide sample of worlds and 
we need to look at them in lots of different ways. We've talked about so many different kind of observational techniques in this discussion already. We've talked about using ALMA, which is looking in the submillimeter and radio to look at the disks, the massive gas and dust disks. Actually, it's not even mostly looking at the gas. You have to look at the spectra for that. So that's a different component you need to do a different observation for. We've talked about directly imaging planets and how we can try and work out whether or not that has a different influence. We talked about, you know, our giant hot Jupiters. If we look at those and we use radial velocities and what is known as the Ross to McLaughlin effect, which is looking at how they pass in front of their star and affect their rotation measurement that you're making, that can tell you whether it's aligned with the rotation of the star or not. And if it is, or if it isn't aligned, that tells you something about if it formed nice and quiescently, steadily, quietly, within its disk, rotating nicely, Keplerian, around its star, or if something happened so that it's actually orbiting the star in a really weird way. We've seen some exoplanets that orbit around the poles, so pole to pole. We've seen some going backwards, so the star's spinning in one direction, the planet's walking around in the other direction, you're like, how there? That doesn't happen in a spinning disk when everything should be spinning in the same direction. So there's huge population and demographic information that we need to be using to start asking more questions. It's not about answering questions necessarily right now. It's about uh, what is the right question to ask. Well, here's another annoying question that I'm going to (laughs) ask. And that is when the planet stops forming. When do we decide that a planet has formed? Because thinking about this, actually, in the shower this morning, (laughs) um, surely anything that is driven by that remnant accretionary heat that's driving geophysical processes in the planet is arguably left over from the formation of the planet, and therefore it's still forming. So arguably the Earth is still forming today. Is a contraction and cooling, that that is the cutoff limit? Is it differentiation? It's the mass growth, isn't it? I think that's... Yeah, I I don't think it is that cooling. I think it is the... When is there's not more materials that you're picking up. But I guess you might always be picking up asteroids and stuff. Exactly, and you're still losing material, right? It's not closed systems. So. Uh, it's maybe just a silly philosophical, you know, semantic question. Oh, but that uh, is. Right? It's some, something fun to think about because arguably... You're being picky. I am very picky. <laughs> just because, you know, geophysical processes today are still being driven by accretionary heat and radiogenic heat, of course, but still, there's still remnants of that formationary energy left in the Earth yeah. driving processes that are happening today. So it's a spectrum. It's right? a big thing that we think is driving or potentially is driving some of the atmospheric loss for these giant planets is that internal heat and that internal heat is causing them to lose mass so have they finished forming there we go that's my question i mean forming to me means coming together so if you're losing it then you've already have to have formed for you to start deforming yeah Um, so i i would put that limit on it from that direction but you know we are Every meteorite that comes to the Earth adds that tiny little bit of mass to it. Are we still accreting and forming? I don't think so, personally, because we are no longer doing it at some kind of... Ah, So it's like a rate limit of how... It's a rate limit and a mass ratio limit, right? So how much mass are you accreting over how much time? Relative to how much you've already accreted. Yeah, Yeah, relative to your size, yeah. yeah. So for our gravitational well... We're pretty pretty massive. We've got a fairly solid gravitational well. We have to move at, what is it, 11 metres per second to get out of our gravitational well. And that's fairly high. So we should be able to accrete a tonne of stuff all the time from that gravitational well. But there isn't stuff around us to do that. 
So once you've cleared out enough mass and material around you, I'd say that you have stopped that active formation process. And I said active. Just like the IAU definition of a planet, right? Which is exactly that, about clearing its area. And we've cleared our area, therefore we're formed, uh, I guess. Therefore we are a planet. So, yeah, I guess. So does that make Jupiter not, uh, sorry, uh, Pluto is not finished forming in that case because it hasn't <laughs> cleared its local area? Well, no, Pluto's different because Pluto is, it's Neptune that needs to have cleared Pluto, Pluto. out. Oh, so it's, it's Neptune so Neptune's not fully formed because <laughs> it hasn't cleared out, cleared out Pluto. <laughs> oh, I'm so pleased that this, this final question has, oh, has prompted I don't like it. Uh, I don't like it. Discussion. I'm sorry. <laughs> Like I said, it was just something, you know, thinking thinking this morning. And um, I'm pleased it wasn't just a silly throwaway thought. It's clearly something to think about here. No, it's not. We don't want another argument in the planet formation community about what is... Well, we'll leave it. We'll leave it to people definition. who study this, who are listening to the show. What What is your thoughts on that? How, has the Earth finished forming? Is Neptune still forming? When is the cutoff for planet formation? Let us know what you think. Oh, well, okay. There's enough open questions. We don't need one more. Come on. <laughs> I think that about ends our discussion for today on how does a planet form? I don't know that we answered it, but we gave some information at least. I don't know. I'm going away with more questions. <laughs> yeah. I, welcome to science. Yep. Don't forget to look out for our news episode later this month and let us know what you think about the show through our Twitter at exo underscore cast or on our website exocast.org where you can find all of our previous shows. You can help us support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Exocast. Each coffee is just $4 and every donation over $15 will get you a shout out on the show. We have a big shout out this month to Carl N for a whopping $100, which is going to really, really help us. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, thanks. And also to Jack in Oregon who bought us seven coffees so we can buzz all the way through wow. every episode. That's at least two month. each. Yeah. That's like a whole day. Yeah, I'll get me through today at least. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Uh, so thank you so much for, for helping us out and keeping Exocast going. You can also get your hands on some Exocast merchandise, T-shirts, stickers and mugs. As always, Andrew is sporting the mug and the T-shirt combination. I've got a light box and a tote bag and he's got his T-shirt and I don't know what you've got here. Got a tote bag too, yeah. So you can get those on exocast.fredless.com. Exocast is edited by Fergus Hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, Kelps Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Anna Wakeford, lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol, and Andrew Rushby, lecturer in astrobiology at Birkbeck University of London. Our podcasts are edited by Fergus Hall and are made possible through your donations. Find more on exocast.org. Exocast. I have exoplanets.